This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, a GA airplane will open the Super Bowl. And drone airspace ops have passed one million. In the frigid north, an ice runway is born. And there are some proposed changes to basic med. Finally, David, you are on the road this week at Redbird Migration. You're going to tell us all about it. I will, Ian. Are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, counterattack final 132.4. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk, everybody. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. David, like we mentioned, you are in Florida in Lakeland at the Redbird Migration. We'll get to that at the end. And also, our guest this week. Very special guest, Amber Peterson, who we will talk about also a little bit later in the show because she has won a big award as part of the event as in AOPA's Flight Training Excellence Awards. So listeners, stick around and find out what Amber Peterson won. All right. So Super Bowl's coming up. David, you big Super Bowl guy because you work it often. In fact, you just told me you're working it this year. I am. So you will see among you and among the billion other people who watch the Super Bowl, a G airplane, a P-51, lead the flyover this year. They're doing a heritage flight. This is so cool. It's about the, from what I understand, Ian, it's the first time there is a heritage flight that will kick off the Super Bowl. The game is going to be at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. Now, it's supposed to be one of the hottest days of the year out there, so I don't know if density altitude is going to be a factor or not. But yeah, man, five aircraft representing the Air Force's 75 years will conduct a one-of-its-kind flyover for the National Anthem at Super Bowl LVI. And you looked that up, and yeah. what number is that, Ian? Oh, man, it was going back to, like, what, whenever we learned that. I don't know, middle school? I, I thought it was 61, not remembering that the X is 10. You reminded me the V is 5, so LVI. I is it's the 56th Super Bowl. These heritage flights are so cool. We see them often at air shows. And so for aviation people, this is sort of a, a normal thing we get to see maybe once or twice a year. But for the general public, I think this is going to be very special. Led by P-51, Steve Hinton is flying it. Big name in the Warbird community, raced at Reno for many years. Also going to be some heavy hitters, an A-10 from Davis Montham out in Arizona, an F-16 from Shaw in South Carolina, an F-22 from Langley and an F-35 from Hill in Utah. 
the latter two aircraft are made by Lockheed, the F-16 uh, General Dynamics, according to my information. And aren't the Thunderbolts made by Fairchild Republic? They were. Okay. Yeah, over in Hagerstown. Yeah, I think that's right. Or Not far Baltimore, from AOPA. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So GA News had this story. And one of the comments, which I think was is really an interesting element to this, is, you know, you're talking about active military pilots flying with a GA guy. Steve Hinton's a GA guy, and he will lead this flight. So that's a very special thing. They're doing a formation. There's a lot of eyes on it. The comment said, and I believe this, there are only about 10 civilian pilots who are approved to fly these heritage flights. So this is very cool. That's an interesting point, Ian. And I got to tell you from the standpoint of being at these kind of games on the sidelines for the anthem, the crowd gets into it. I mean, it is a thing. And uh, NASCAR races, you, you generally do see some Air Force flyovers. That's not uncommon. The Super Bowl, a lot of the games lately have been inside, inside domes, so you don't oh, get to yeah. see outside. So this will be unique. And Steve Hinton, as you said, is just one of the luminaries. So very interesting. All eyes will be on Super Bowl 56. Yeah, very cool. Okay. Hey, moving on. The FAA just announced we have reached, this blows my mind, We've reached a million airspace authorizations for drone pilots. So this isn't like a million operations. This is a million drone flights in controlled airspace. Yeah, Ian, you know, uh, as a drone pilot myself, I just re-upped my currency. I got recurrent every 24 months, by the way. Mm -hmm. If you're a drone pilot, a Part 107 commercial drone pilot, you do need to, to get your, your test done again. And let me tell the folks who are drone pilots that are listening, there are some new... I don't want to say that there are regulations. There are some new procedures, and it was really good for me to take that because now you can fly over people depending on what kind of class of drone you have, how much it weighs, things like that. And we are fixing to talk about airspace. So there's some different airspace uh, that you have to be careful of and the low altitude authorization and notification capability, LANCE for short, which is basically an online permission form via an app will allow pilots to fly in airspace and basically ask ATC for permission. And it's, it's pretty automatic. They recommend you ask up to 90 days before you're going to fly somewhere. In reality, it could almost be down to the last minute. Don't don't tell anyone I said that. Hangar Talk podcast <laughs> listeners, all three of y'all. Yeah, that's right. But, nobody, um, <laughs> yeah, nobody will say anything. Yeah. No, but, um, but it's really interesting. The thing is, Ian, as a private pilot um, like yourself and like me, I would have had no idea that one million airspace ops had happened with drones since 28 since 2018 and that's controlled airspace because as i under this is all I'm, i don't follow the drone stuff very closely and so this was a bit new to me but you apparently if you're flying in class g airspace so a lot of airports of course are class g because right that class right. e doesn't start until 700 feet you can go out and just do it you can go fly without any authorization but if you're going to fly in any controlled airspace so any class e or above you're talking smaller airports with class E to the surface, and then obviously any sort of class DC or B, you need one of these authorizations. And so a million times this has happened. That's actually, I think, one way to look at this is it's really encouraging from a safety standpoint, because there, there have been, okay, a few issues here and there, no question. But by and large, we're talking about pretty safe mixing of uh, manned and unmanned, and that, that's really pretty cool. It is, Ian. I think that's a, an interesting way to get this done. And look, the system now covers 542 air traffic 
facilities serving approximately 735 airports. That's a that's a big chunk of real estate there. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Amazing. One million, one million airspace ops. Yep. So uh, moving on to Alton Bay. Now, if you haven't heard of Alton Bay, maybe you're new to aviation or don't follow the news every year in, call it January, February. Alton Bay is an ice runway on Lake Winnipesaukee up in New Hampshire, the only one of its kind, and it is now officially open. 30 aircraft arrived for opening day at the, on the ice runway in New Hampshire, and I have never been there, Ian. But I've always wanted to go. Now, have you ever landed on ice in anything? You know, I had to think about that. I Okay, do you count an icy ramp with the helicopter? Because I have done that. Yes, I would count that. Okay, okay, I've done that. In fact, they said that a helicopter did arrive for this. And I will tell you, it is... It's you got to be on your game a little bit because you can definitely feel the thing being a little squirrely under your feet. You know, you can feel the skid sort of move left and right under you. And so you got to make sure that your your feet are active just like you would with a tailwheel or something like that. So as I understand it, this is it's not terribly challenging taking off and landing from this ice runway. I would think it would be. But it's the I think the idea is let it roll and long that sort of thing. It's a pretty long runway. But no, that that's it. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna differ with you. I think it's gonna be let it slide. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the yeah. ice runway is generally open from January to March, and it's believed to be the only plowed ice runway in the continental U.S. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure what happens up in Alaska, uh, because I, I'm guessing that there are, are winter ops at a lot of places with a lot of frozen Without water. Frozen over. That's true. Yeah. yeah. But in the continental U.S., this is different. Yeah. I suppose plowed is the key there because, you know, if you're flying on skis, you're landing probably on frozen lakes all the time. But um, a plowed runway where anybody can go into it. Yeah. Well, how do you slow down? I mean, I guess, you know, you're you're using friction, obviously. And, you know, if you have flaps, deploy your flaps and and use whatever you've got. But, I mean, of course, no brakes. Yeah. And you better be on your game if you're landed in a crosswind or something. Yeah, yeah. So, as you can imagine, this is entirely weather dependent. So, 2020, they didn't open at all. They are open now. It is, you want to get sort of up to the minute status updates and so they do have a, a a number and it is it is manned you know there's a manager who keeps track of the conditions all the time so if you go on to aopa.org and look up this alton bay runway you'll see the number there for the manager call them ahead of time hey how's their conditions and then there are places to eat right there off the runway so the locals love it you go and you land and you go up to the what becomes an airport cafe during the summer it's a lake you know, a lake restaurant, and uh, during uh, the winter, it's an airport cafe. Well, hold a hot chocolate for me, Ian. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll be right back. Okay, David, so moving on. Basic Med, we'd love to talk about this. Such a cool program. 70,000 pilots now are part of Basic Med. And one of the sort of weird catch-22s is that if you were a safety pilot, under certain circumstances, you could not fly with Basic Med. And, and hopefully that's going to change soon. You know, Ian, I have flown as a safety pilot with a friend of mine in Atlanta, and this was a, I don't want to say it was a loophole, but it is definitely something that a lot of people haven't considered. Acting as a safety pilot, now you could you could fly as a pilot in command under basic med, of course. Yes, we know that, yep. But if you were a required crew member or second in command and you had basic med, you couldn't fly as a SIC. Yeah, which is really crazy because it's, so the way this works, if, if you haven't looked at the rules in a while, is when you're flying under simulated instrument conditions, so the pilot's wearing a hood, 
maybe he's trying to gain experience, still in training, whatever. You have to have a safety pilot. That's a required, that's your required crew member at that point. Now you have two options, the safety pilot. You can act as second in command, the required crew member, or you can act as pilot in command of the flight. Now, a couple of years ago, apparently, according to Jared Allen, a, an attorney with AOPA's uh, legal services, you could continue to act as pilot in command under basic med, and the person flying could then just be so manipulated the controls, but you couldn't act as SIC. So if you didn't want to act as PIC, didn't meet the insurance, uh, whatever, you couldn't do it. You couldn't act as a, as a safety pilot. In my case, in the Westminster Aerobats Flying Club, Cessna Aerobat, for instance, mm -hmm. That would not work because uh, you would, for insurance purposes, as you just alluded to, you have to be named on a lot of these policies, too. Mm, so yeah. that's another thing to think so about. So if you weren't a member of a club, then you couldn't be there. Yeah. Interesting. But acting as a SIC, this is interesting to me because, of course, if you had a third-class medical, you can act as a SIC yes. anytime, yep. any day. But if what's the difference between basic med and in these days, if you've yeah. passed all, if you've done all the requirements for basic med, you've gone to your doctor, it should be the same as third class in most instances. Yeah. Well, I guess there's going to be an exception for the type of airplane you're in too. Now, here's a good question. I didn't even think about that. What if it's more than a six passenger airplane or it's over the weight limit? Uh, that kind of thing. Hmm. Exactly. So you could theoretically in the past, you could have been SIC, but now you can't because you have basic med and you're not qualified for the airplane and you're SIC. So that's this is hopefully going to change. In November, the FAA put out a notice of proposed rulemaking. AOPA just submitted comments in support of this. Also, AOPA is advocating, in addition, that examiners should be allowed to operate under basic med. I think that's a great idea. The applicant is acting as PIC anyway, so they, to me, that's a no-brainer, but apparently has not necessarily been allowed in the past. So just clarifying some of these things to hopefully make it a little more usable in the future. Yeah, and it's it's already fuzzy logic to me, yeah. so I'm hoping that more clarity <laughs> comes into the picture. It sounds like it will. Yeah. And of course, the AOPA, like we've done many, many times in the past and are still doing with, with Avgas, um, looking to the future, we are trying to sort this out and being an advocate for pilots. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Okay. So, hey, let's talk about Redbird. You're down in Florida enjoying the conference two days where flight training providers, companies, simulator customers, obviously the manufacturer, they all get together. They talk about everything from safety to new instructional techniques, how to incorporate sims into training to, for in our case, giving away the flight training uh, experience awards. That will be a highlight, Ian, and that will, as we record this, that will be tonight. But yeah, Ian, you know, Redbird Migration is one of a, just a, a handful of events for flight training professionals. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other being the high school symposium that we host, which will return to a live format this year, too. But Ian, 200 people signed up for this. They're you know, instructors, educators, teaching professionals. We're down here at the Aerospace Center for Excellence. It's adjacent to Lakeland Linder International Airport. And the, like we said, the Flight Training Experience Awards will be given out tonight. And that's a huge event. And it will, will be the highlight, you know, if you will, the cap on the, on the event. I'm not going to allude to who won. I'm going to let you take that. But there are a couple of other interesting things that are going to be announced or disclosed at this event uh, that have to do with AOPA. And I learned on the way over here that the AOPA, you can fly 
high school aviation STEM curriculum, which is available for grades 9 to 12, will soon have the support of the Redbird Flight Simulations Inc. company with some simulator-based interactive training situations. So that would be cool if I was back in high school. Yeah, that is great. And also, as I understand it, the AFTA, the flight training app that AOPA created and has and um, gotten out there to the community, that was also demonstrated, I think, hopefully to raise awareness there. Showcased today, in fact. Yeah, pa- Pablo uh, Mar- Marilia, um showcased that today. He's been working on it for several years. And there was a lot of interest in that workshop. Ian, I counted and there were... 35 seats available for that, and there were 35 people in there. So that was pretty robust. Like we said, 200 people are at the event. There were, I counted them up, there were um, over 30 breakout sessions. There were nine main speakers, or basically keynotes, if you will, spread over two days. And one of the other interesting presentations, I got to tell you about this, was by Redbird Vice President of Marketing, Josh Harnigal. And he put together a 2021 state of flight training survey and it benchmarked a lot of the flight training industry. It went into a lot of details, a lot of, a lot of different things, but a couple that I thought were key takeaways were the results of um, what the charges would be for the average flight instructor by the hour, single engine aircraft, what they rent for, what a multi rents for, and what a training device rents for. You want me to hit you with those figures? Yeah, yeah, this is interesting, I think. So the average flight instructor would charge $65 an hour. Now, don't forget, it's you know higher maybe in L.A. and New York and lower in Gainesville, Georgia. Sure. You know, but we just have to get, get an average. Single-engine training aircraft rent for $150 an hour on average. Whew. Yo. Multi-engine aircraft. Yeah, well, before we go to multis, yeah, when I first started <laughs> flying, yeah, I'm that old. And it was like... You know, I want to say 80 and uh, for 172, and then it, it creep, creeped up, you know, as the models became newer. Yeah, I remember um, same thing. So that would have been about right because I was about 45 bucks for a 152. Okay. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. You know, I never used a 152 in training. Oh, you missed out. I know. They're cool airplanes. Well, I'm in the Westminster Airbats. That's true. So you're flying one now. Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah, I do. It's really, it's a great airplane. All right. So multi-engine aircraft rent for more than double, $330 an hour. But a key finding was that flight training devices like the Redbird FMX full motion simulator average about $85 an hour. Now that's nothing to sneeze at either, but... You get so much more out of your training when you're, you know, reinforcing some of these concepts and skills on the ground, especially if it's instrument yeah. work. You know, that to me, flight schools are listening. I'm going to give you my unsolicited opinion. That to me is a mistake. I think if if I had a sim, the way I would price, and I've seen a few schools do this, and I think it's brilliant. It benefits, I think, both school and student. I would do a subscription service. So you've got your Redbird. I would charge, I don't know what the number is, 150, 200 bucks a month, and you get unlimited use because. Oh, that's a good way of doing it. Come in on your own time and just in practice. Yep, because that gets people using it more often. That gets a steady huh. stream of income for the school. And the thing is, you, you, want, you don't want to disincentivize pricing on simulators because we know that they help bring down hours in the airplane. So we know that people are trained more efficiently. It means they have a better experience, they get better value out of their training. 
So to me, it's like, yeah, put it on a subscription price, make it whatever the market's going to be. I don't know. Keep it reasonable so that people want to opt into it and they want to come and actually use the sim and it keeps up with the maintenance. And then it's like, it's a win-win. And the scenario-based training is proven that it does help and it does make you a more proficient pilot for sure. Yeah. There are, there are a couple other um, key highlights here at Redbird. First of all, I want to say that, that folks are really happy to return to an in-person format. There was so much camaraderie and socializing here. These are flight training instructors and educators, Ian, from around the country that really only have a couple of events to go to, like we mentioned. There's apparently another one out in Las Vegas I'm not familiar with the organization, but between the Redbird migration, our gig at the high school symposium, and just one more, there are only like three big events to go to for flight training professionals. And I want to say NAFI used to do one, but they haven't more recently held in-person events. Yeah, that's right. So Fasana does theirs, I know, every year. but That's what it yeah. is, Fasana. So what does Fasana stand, stand for? Flight School Association of North America. Okay, so yep. that's in Vegas, and that's in a couple of weeks. And, you know, it's great for these teachers to get together because they share ideas. I mean, you see them in little knots off to the side talking about what works and what doesn't work. Yep, exactly. So, but, of course, the, the highlight of the show, I think, really is the Flight Training Experience Awards. I think it's great that they do it there. It showcases the best of flight training, so it's a, it's a really perfect place to do it. Yes. So we've talked about the regional winners uh, in the past when they were announced, but at the show, they will announce, or as you're listening to this, have announced that the best instructor of the year is Amber Peterson. She's from Minneapolis, Minnesota, a career changer, which I think is so cool. And the best flight school is a new one to this list that's in the pattern, and they are down in Denton, Texas. Denton, Texas. I looked it up. It's a suburb of Dallas. And you spoke to the folks at In the Pattern. Yeah. And we're going to tip our hat to Jill Tallman, who spoke to Amber. But um, yeah, I want to go visit In the Pattern when I'm down in uh, in Dallas visiting my brother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, those guys, the energy there, I am, they've got me. I'm a true believer. I think they've been, made something really special there. We will have them on the next episode of Hangar Talk as the guest. But Yep. Amber Peterson. People are going to hear all about her, about her background, and what winning this award means to her and her flight training philosophy. Congratulations on being named uh, top flight instructor of the Great Lakes region. It's that's really cool. What do you think of the fact that your students love you enough to nominate you? I'm absolutely flattered. It was it was a very pleasant surprise when I got that email letting me know that I had been awarded this. It's good for me, just personal validation of I'm doing the right things and I'm helping people succeed. So that was just gigantic. One of the first things I did was just reach out to everybody and thank them for nominating me and letting me know that I'm doing the right things. And then I always ask for feedback too on what can I do differently or what am I doing correctly that I shouldn't change. So this was a nice validation to know that I'm doing the right things. I think that's great that you ask for feedback. Do you get it? Do you have to prod them or are they forthcoming or how, how does it work? Yeah, in general, I do get feedback and I always text them too after they pass a check ride or a milestone or something just to check in to see what's working, what's not. 
But yeah, just little things that you don't even think, or I haven't even thought about, but make a big difference is, for example, I always make sure to text my students the day before a lesson to give them time to prep or for doing a certain approach or maybe um, stepping outside of the syllabus a little bit based on weather so that they can become adequate, they can come in adequately prepared for the lesson. And um, that's just a huge thing. Setting them up for to succeed is big. Absolutely. Preparation for every lesson is what we kind of pound into uh, the readers, you know, be prepared and you'll succeed a little bit better. So uh, let's talk about how you got into aviation. You were in high school and you decided that you were going to get your pilot certificate. Yeah. So it was actually kind of a surprise. When I was a little girl, I wanted to be an astronaut. And so my high school graduation present was to get my private. So I spent that summer in a 152 going through that, those lessons. And actually, right before I went to college, I passed my, uh, my check ride and packed up my car and went to school. So yeah. Wow. And then what happened? And then I flew just a little bit the next year or two. And then as what happens to a lot of folks is life happened and money happened. And I just didn't fly for about 20 years. Right. I traveled a lot for work and I always wanted to turn left to go into the cockpit, but turned right and got in my seat. <laughs> and um, I happened to be a friend of a friend actually in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Who knew where, where good things happen? But I was talking to a friend of a friend who was a pilot and he encouraged me to get back into the cockpit and I just never got out. So I, as soon as I got back in, I just absolutely loved it worked a little while to get my medical back and then started through my certificates and ratings. It took me about a year and a half, two years to become a CFI and lots of hard work, but worth worth every bit of it. And when you started back, did you have it have in mind that you were going to get your CFI or did you just think I'm, I'm just going to get current and go from there or how, how did that work? I did intend just honestly based on the money to intend to make it a career change. So I didn't quite know where that was going to be, 121, 135. And then honestly, I got my CFI just to get hours and like a lot of folks do. And I absolutely loved it. Absolutely. It's my passion being there and helping people achieve that dream of flying. What do you love about teaching people to fly? What I love about it is I didn't realize I loved teaching until I became a CFI. And what is beautiful about being a CFI is everybody that walks into my door wants to be there. Even it's their passion. You know, they've wanted to do it since they were four years old or it's going to be their career. So it's great because everybody wants to be there. And then just helping them fulfill that dream or that milestone, you know, seeing that happiness after their first solo or just that sense of achievement after nailing that first approach or, or passing their check ride. It's just so good to be able to help facilitate them feel that good about themselves. I can only imagine. What is challenging about teaching people to fly? What is the biggest challenge to me is just is when people hit a plateau or get frustrated. And what is it that I can do differently to help them succeed? So the majority of people are going to be able to do what it is they're trying to do, but it might take them a little bit longer. So what can I do differently? Or can I reach out to another CFI and can he or she help maybe put things together to teach them a little bit differently? But it's hard when somebody beats themselves up or you can just see the disappointment when we get back on the ground. So that's, that's the difficult thing. Sure. Sure. You teach in the mini in the twin cities area. Is that yeah. correct? Mm -hmm. So 
for those of us on the East Coast who, um, who, who we only get winter like every other year, tell us what it's like to fly in December in the Twin Cities area. The pre-flight is the worst. I will be completely honest. So that is the good thing about being a CFI is uh, students pre-flight and I can teach pre-flight in the hangar. So difficulties, honestly, are the, are obviously, well, in the majority of our planes, we don't have de-icing or anti-ice. So just, you know, we end up being downed a decent amount for that. Not as much as one would think. Actually, we have clear skies a lot in Minneapolis. So it's better than, for example, being in Michigan. Sure. And then, you know, dealing with a 152 in the winter, I fly in snow pants. People just make fun of me, but I've got bibs with zip-up legs and um, layers to stay warm enough. I don't think the people in Alaska would uh, would make fun of you because that's what they fly that's in. That's true. That's what they do. <laughs> I've come back with after a, cross, a night cross country with frost on my mic. That oh, was, my God. That was a rough one. Rough one. <laughs> I can't even conceive of that. <laughs> No, it was not. I will be honest. I did not enjoy that flight. And I don't say that much about many of my flights, but I did not enjoy that one. But in general, I mean, the I, you know, for piston planes, you really don't go below like zero. It's just not good for them. Sure, sure. But that's cold. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's cold that's enough. Brutally cold. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But actually, you know, I think about people who learn to fly in Florida and, and California, and they never encounter that kind of extremes, you know, and I, I would, I would imagine it's good experience. It is. It's great experience. And the majority of my teaching has been out of a busy class Delta and you get a hundred degree days in the summer. So you get horrible performance and then you get, you know, contaminated runways in the winter. And, you know, when you get a, three, three, three advisory. And you go, you better know what that is. (laughs) Um, It's good to get that full spectrum, actually, because besides mountain flying, you get the full gamut in Minneapolis, which is nice. Well, that's great. Well, thanks again for taking the time to talk to us. And we really appreciate all your hard work as a flight instructor. We're happy for you. Um, Are you planning to attend the Redbird gathering or not sure yet? Not sure, hoping to. So I'm probably like 90% in. I haven't booked any travel yet or anything. Okay, great. That's good to know. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your taking the time. You bet. So big congrats to Amber. Really well-deserved. This is, as I should remind folks, based completely on customer feedback. So these are her students saying that they she has done an amazing job getting them through to their the end of their training and highly appreciative. And I just think it's a, it's a great award. So congrats to Amber. Yep. And more power to her. I know she's really excited about it and brings a lot of enthusiasm to the flight training world up in Minnesota. All right, David, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Tulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk and wherever you get your podcasts. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, Ian. Hangertalk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.